Today's uh, Bible reading is taken from Exodus. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 9. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my commandment, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answers back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Thanks, Barb. Well, there was a, um, a burglar that broke into a home uh, and he was having a good look around. And he heard this whisper, Jesus is watching you. He looked around like, what was that? Jesus is watching you. Thinking it was his imagination, he sort of continued the search, got a bit louder. Jesus is watching you. Again, the voice said, Jesus is watching you. He turned on his flashlight and put it around everywhere he could, and he, he saw a parrot in a cage. He said, Oh, Phew. he asked the parrot if he was the one that talking, and the parrot said, Yes, it was me. Yes. And he asked the parrot what his name was. The parrot said, my name is Moses. The burglar asked, what kind of people would name their parrot Moses? The parrot replied, the same people who name their pit bull Jesus. Jesus is watching you. <laughs> We're going to hear a bit, bit about Moses today in church um, and tonight as well, if you're coming back. And a little bit about Jesus as well. And we're going to say, seek the, the same outcome that God would draw near to us in and through our message today. Last week we started to look a little bit at Moses, didn't we? If you were here with us, if you weren't, you can go back online and have a look. And he listened to the bush that was burning without being consumed and God told him to go and confront Pharaoh and ask, his people to let, uh, ask Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh said no, and there were all the plagues. Destroyed everything in the land. You can read all about that in Exodus 7, uh, chapter 7 to 11. The final plague was the plague of the firstborn. The Israelites were told to paint their door, um, the door frame red with the, with the blood of the, the lamb, and the Lord will pass over the families on that night and spare the firstborn. You can imagine the pain that it would have caused that nation of Egypt that morning. You can read about that in chapter 12 of Exodus. The Israelites then got the green light to go. They were told, get out of here, flee from Egypt. And, but as was the case with Pharaoh and all the other um, uh, plagues, he realized his work, workforce was leaving them. What was this going to do for the, the, the development of his nation when they've lost all their uh, laborers? So he went after them. 
And he finds them walking through the Red Sea and they're going through on dry land. Walls of water both sides. Imagine what that would have felt like walking through a space with the water. You go through the aquarium and you see the water all over you. Been through that? The, the tunnel of the aquarium? It'd be like that without glass on it. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> and the, uh, and the, the Egyptians go through after them and the water comes down and them, wiping them out. Securing the freedom of the Israelites and beginning their journey of wandering through the desert. That's a snapshot of the start of Exodus if you needed that. Now, it's a lot to, to cover, isn't it, in, in a couple of messages. But we want to try and get God's bigger story coming through that we can understand it for our story here on earth. So part of Israel's history could be a, a whole series in itself. We could spend uh, months just on these little past but we want to see God's biggest story at play here and see how that fits into who we are now um, or I suppose we could call it God's upper story the thing that's going on above what we are feeling here on our lower story on the ground I suppose so as we touch base with the story today God has delivered uh, the Israelites out of Egypt they start their journey towards this land that had been promised to them There was a great deliverance that happened. So we pick up the story with the delivered Israelites now starting to wander through the desert. So three months after they left Egypt, uh, they end up in the desert of Sinai, where they camp in front of this big mountain, Mount Sinai. You hear it quite a bit, Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai. From from, uh, a geographical standpoint, Mount Sinai reaches an elevation of 2,285 metres. It's not just a small little hill, and it's a part of a larger mountain range called the Sinai Massif. The peak is categorised by rugged terrain. It's not just a grassy hill. Uh, It's often covered in snow in the winter months. It would have been a focal point for that area. And it obviously becomes a very focal point in the story of the Israelite nation. So at this space, at Mount Sinai, Moses meets with God multiple times. And the first time we see Moses meeting with God is in the passage that Barb just read to us. In verse 3 it says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain. Now, through the time in captivity, generation after generation of making bricks, to the time of deliverance as Moses kept on letting the plagues come through, to the start of their wandering together, God would not have felt close all the time. God was not walking side by side with them as he had in the garden with Adam. At this stage in the nation's history, Moses went to meet God. Moses went to meet God. That's huge. There was this divide between God and people at that time. God was near but far at the same time. And Moses went up to God. So Moses goes up the mountain and God says to him, Now I have seen what I did. Now, you, now you, Sorry, let's try that again. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now... If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you speak to the Israelites. This is what Moses is saying. Ah, God's saying to Moses. So God is setting up this upper story Now, God is calling Moses to bring the nation to obedience to God because as they keep the covenant, 
as they obey him, he's going to make them into this holy nation, a nation of a kingdom of priests. Now, a priest had plenty of roles to do in that, that time, that Israelite nation. They were to lead the people in worship. So lead them in the space of worship. They were to bless or consecrate new temples, new spaces, special events. They were, they were the ones that, that set the stand of that. But one of the key roles was to be the, the mediator that comes between the God and the people, that, that overcome the separation that was made between God and the Israelite people. So it's a really important role, this priestly role. So God says, you're going to become a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a nation chosen to be the mediator between God and others, a mediator that brings others close, brings people into a right relationship with God. That was his, God's hope for this nation. So God, through this initial reaction with Moses, is setting out his hope that this nation will be close to him, that others may be drawn close to him as well. God wants to be with Israel. That's the big idea, the big vision of the whole story of God, that God wants to be with his people. That's the big story. The Trinity of God wants to extend its community to include us, include the people. How amazing is that? God wants to come down and do life with the people. So that was the original vision of Genesis 1. And that's what God is desperately wanting to do as we walk through this story. Page after page in Scripture, chapter after chapter, God wants to be back in relationship with us. In Genesis, sin, stepping away from God, turning our back on God, it ruined God's vision of community with him. It separated us from God, from each other. Then until this point in time, God interact with people, yet was never present fully with the people. In fact, last week we heard that God was listening to the cries of the people, these people in captivity. Uh, he was listening, but he was listening what would have seemed from a distance. That's why the people were crying out. So now we start to hear that God is determined to be back in with the people, to be dwelling with the people. But if God is to dwell in the, with the people... Three things would need to happen, and I want to share that with you now. But before we do, let's pray so we can um, seek God's word in this. So God, I pray that as we seek to understand um, what you want of us in your bigger story, that we may be blessed, that we may uh, be humble enough to hear and to uh, put into action uh, what we hear. Thanks, Lord. Amen. So, so God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit had this vision at creation to be with the people. It's very important that you understand God's passion in this. It was for them to, to create all that they've created and then to be with Adam and Eve in the garden. They created and created. It was good. It was very good. And then they dwelled in the garden with them. That's God's grand vision, to be in community with humanity. It's got what God wanted and it's unfortunately what Adam and Eve rejected. And they were escorted from the garden. But there's a, an observation in the story that we can make. That, that God isn't a, just an up there. Quite often we go, well, God's up there and we're down here sort of, sort of situation. However your theology works, I'm just going to use that, that imagery for now. 
that we often equate God as to be an up there God while we're sort of down here people. But there's five times in Scripture where God comes down to be with us. Firstly, at the creation, that in the garden, God is with them. He comes down when we're talking about the, the Mount Sinai. He's on the mountain with, with Moses. He's down. Um, we're looking at that. The incarnation, when Jesus comes to earth, God present, dwelling among us, Emmanuel. The birth of the church, when God takes up residence, not in a temple made of bricks and stone, but in a new temple, he comes and dwells in us. And the final time is the end of the story, where we haven't seen yet, when God's vision is restored, a new heaven and a new earth um, is, 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 recreates this new garden. And, it, and God comes down and dwells in with us for those who embrace God's vision through Jesus Christ. But the point of all that is to say that God is not just an up there, distant God. God is down, wants to be down here with us. That's God's great desire. So up the mountain Moses goes and God comes down and visits Moses and says, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. They're going to see that God is with them. That's massive for the people of God. God is going to come down and be with them for the first time since creation. I will be right in the center of where you are, right at your camp. I'll be blessing you. When God's presence is with us, we experience blessing, we experience protection, we experience guidance, we experience power. We have the favor of God. But in order for God to come down, we've got to do these three things. The first thing that we need to do is that we need to be, or God wants us to see, or wants to see, a community that thrives together. A community that thrives together. See, God envisioned a community where all people were treated with respect and dignity. But all God had seen from the beginning was probably the opposite. That's why he brought a flood to go through and, and start again, in essence. Even then, he wasn't the righteous enough to stop sin. Um, um, Noah wasn't righteous enough to stop sin from creeping in again. It raised its ugly head again. So God developed this set of guidelines. We know them as the Ten Commandments. Uh, another classic film, we've been talking about the films that have been based on all of these uh, stories. Another classic film. We should, do, we should do film Sunday afternoons where we all get, to, you get together in different people's houses to watch these amazing stories. I don't need to organise as a program. Talk to some people around you and say, hey, do you want to watch the Ten Commandments today? Do that. That'd be really cool. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> and so, so God's sole purpose of these commandments, not just the Ten, but the extra laws that came with them, were to create a community where everyone got along with God and with other, and there was a mutual respect and freedom. It wasn't about a rule. It was about opening up a community that lived and worked together well. Because we know it, as a rule, we don't like rules, do we? As, as, as people, we don't like people putting rules on this. I learned this as a youth pastor when I was in England. Uh, uh, as soon as you, oh, I've learned it probably before that, um, as soon as you put a rule on a 12-year-old, you know it's going to be trying to be broken. It's like, it's like a, a, a red rag to a bull, isn't it? Um, how, how do I go about breaking those rules is the understanding of a 12-year-old. So uh, it was actually when I was at Heathmont. I had a couple of Year 9 boys when I started leading youth. And they were cheeky. They were cheeky. And I like cheeky, cheeky Year 9 kids. They all are. Um, I had one last year. I'll have one next year. They're cheeky. I loved them and I shared life with them. And it was great, this, this small group of kids. 
Um, I gave them reasonably tight boundaries, um, and they love to break those boundaries. One night at youth group at Heathmont Baptist Church, is, um, we had a rule, you don't go out of the building. And I, uh, I, found, the, I found that they'd ended up up the bell tower of the church. I didn't even know you could get up there. So there you go. Um, they got into a bit of strife. I wasn't the pastor of the youth pastor at the time, but they got into a bit of strife. And, uh, and I had to sort of gently let them know that that wasn't the right thing to do. You didn't follow my one rule. And they said, we, didn't follow, we did follow your one rule. We didn't go out of the building. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> they know. Rules help us stay within boundaries, don't they? We have rules as a way of bringing understanding to chaos. So often we look at rules as things that restrict or confine us to certain ways of doing things. We're happy for police to target speeding cars when they zip past our, our houses or zoom past us on the inside or whatever at the school zones. We're happy for police to get, but we get grumpy when we're pulled over because we go four kilometres over the limit. Rules are rules, they're there to guide us. A coach of a basketball team wanted his young players to uh, understand the need for rules in the game of basketball because we all need rules. Uh, within the rules, we find the boundaries. However, to do it best, this coach decided that he'll play a game of basketball where there were no rules. No rules basketball. Um, there's actually wrestling basketball. I looked it up on YouTube. I thought that was pretty funny. You can, it's just chaos. Just, and it's like on the hard floor. Not good. But anyway, they still had rules, funny enough. Uh, with no rules, you can imagine what, imagine what a bunch of kids did with a basketball game. There was tuck it under the, the arm and start running. We've got a dribbling basketball. There was pushing, fouling. There was no rules, so it didn't matter. Fighting. The coach got them together and said, so how did that go? He said, well, no one could score because we just hit each other all the time. <laughs> he said, well, what do we got to do? He said, I think we need to put some boundaries in place so that you don't hit each other. What about the dribbling? Yeah, well, it made it a lot easier to play the game because we just ran with the ball. He said, was it fun, though? He said, no. So we put some some basis around how you can travel, how much you can travel, what you can do. So he taught them, he taught them that rules actually helped. So if we look at the Israelite nation, which had come out of Egypt, there was no real guidelines for them. They'd been a, a nation that had been in slavery for 400 years. So what was the guidelines to set about how to build community in this space? It was a little like the no rules basketball team, basketball game. I can do whatever I want and there's not much regard for the other because I'm free. But in the bigger story of God, God is preparing to come and be with them. And if that was the case, they needed how to understand how to, to treat one another in the kingdom of God. So God speaks to Moses, summons him up the mountain, gives him the Ten Commandments to take to his people as a way to enforce good mutual friendship, both with God and with others. And you can read about all that in Exodus 20 and onwards. Uh, just as an aside from that as well, uh, it shows the extent as to how far the people would go without any boundaries when Moses comes down from the mountain uh, with these tablets. And what does he find the people are doing? Idol worshipping, building, getting their gold together and building something that they can worship. The commandments stop that. Well, should stop that. Stop them forgetting um, that God is number one, that relationship with others is important. So if the Ten Commandments are misunderstood or just seen as a God who is distant, giving them a, a set of rules to, to, to judge them and to set boundaries that they don't want to keep and those sort of things, 
You can understand how, how people can just see God as this distant God that is just a lawman. But if there are no rules, then there'd be no basis to break rules. So the Ten Commandments were anything but this way of judgment. The Ten Commandments were used to help the Israelite people understand how to live life well, in community with God and with one another. The Ten Commandments actually seep into every aspect of our relationships with God and with each other. The first four commandments talk about a vertical relationship with God, our, our, our relationship with God, how, how we treat God ultimately with love and respect. We're only to worship Him, not golden calves or not anything else. Only Him. We're, only, we're not to create our own gods by melting down gold. We're, we're not to, to minimalize or trivialize God's name. We were to honour God by dedicating a day to him through the week for rest and uh, worship. We're invited to be fully devoted to God in the first four commandments. The rest of the commandments guide our horizontal relationship, our relationship with how we treat one another. We're told to honour our parents as this first relationship outside our relationship with God. That's got to be a, an honouring relationship. After that, God prohibits murder, adultery, stealing, lying, all things that we would say we don't do. But um, the New Testament, Jesus comes in and says, if you've done this even in your heart, you have done this. Jesus later, he, he sums it all up. He says that the guidelines for living can be based in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your, all your soul and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. Don't hurt one another. Don't take advantage of one another. Obey the commandments. Not as a set of boundary rules, but a set of freeing rules for community. So we look at God's upper story, the bigger story. We see that these are not rules to trip us up and to try and give us some sort of penalty. These are guidelines for the type of community that God is wanting to be a part of. So God wants to be a part of us and we need to be a community that thrives together. The second thing that God needs is a place to stay. A place to stay. So after the mess that happened in the garden, God no longer walked with this creation so whilst there was sin in the world, God could not be a part of it. In Exodus 25, verse 2, we hear, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I'll show you. And then you can read through how he wants things to look. Now, the word tabernacle means a, a place of dwelling. And it was where God would end up meeting his people. If you read through Exodus 26, you hear the intricacies on which the tent in God was to reside needed to be built. It was fully gold, finely twisted linen, special wood covered with ram skins. It was extravagant. It was extravagant. And it could seem, I suppose from an outsider's look, indulgent. But if we look at the lower story perspective, we could say that looks excessive. But when we're thinking about a place that actually was what this place really meant, who this place was representing, who this place was holding, our minds can be changed. This was not just for a place for us to come and worship or the people to come and worship. It was a place where God's earthly presence was going to be. And God needed to know if the Israelite nation was going to obey him, make it like this. Are you going to keep some of those indulgences just for yourself? Or are you going to trust that this is my presence coming down? 
God had plenty of reason not to trust the Israelites. They'd gone off course many times before. But God, being God, puts his work in the hands of people, allows broken humanity to build his place, a place where God would dwell. And it was a place where God dwelt among all his people. We hear in Exodus 40, 34, that the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. How amazing would that have been for the people of God? God came down and was present with them. In amongst God's people, it was different this time. They didn't walk together like Adam might have. They were still humanly stained with the marks of sin the people were. But God dwelt amongst them in this space. And the people saw God's presence. By day they saw the cloud present. By night it was fire. And God came back down and found a place in the community of God's people. God needed somewhere to be. Yet before they had any further interaction, one last thing needed to be achieved. And this is a big one. God required a place for sin to be atoned for. God required a place for sin to be atoned for. They can't be in full community yet. So the people of God had some guidelines as how to treat each other, the commandments, the laws. They had prepared the place for God to dwell, so God came down. Yet there was still a gap between God and humanity, and that gap is spelled S-I-N. God desperately wanted to be with his creation, his people, yet God and sin just cannot be together. Sin and perfection cannot... Uh, equate to being in the same room. It's like having this perfect white piece of paper. And the only colour that can be used on that perfect white piece of paper is the perfect white uh, marker. Any other colour, an off-white, a beige, uh, uh, something that looks a little bit like white but isn't, it doesn't work. It will be shown up on that perfect white paper and the paper is no longer perfect. So God cannot be associated, cannot engage with anyone or anything who is in essence not perfect. That's a bit of a pain for us, isn't it? (laughs) Because we know, each of us know we are not perfect. Uh, We've been seen, seen from a lower perspective than God. We've fallen short of God's standards. We're not perfect. We know that. And if anyone is, come and see me because I'd love to chat to you. (laughs) this problem meant that there was no way God and the Israelites could interact in the way that God originally had intended. So God said the only way to make it work is if if the people's sin is paid for, atoned for, by something that is unblemished. The book of Leviticus lays out all of what happened in order for humanity's sin to be atoned for. Through the use of sacrificial animals, unblemished, pure animals whose blood will atone for the sins of the Israelites. In our culture today, uh, it can be seen as a little barbaric and a little inhumane. But for the Israelites, who as a nation were tied to hunting animals and uh, for their very survival, animal sacrifice was the way that they bridged the gap between themselves and God. A pure Innocent animal, something that was valuable in a a practical sense. It was their food, that sort of thing. It took their punishment. Instead of the sinful person being struck down for his or her sins, the lamb accepted the punishment so that person could live in a right relationship with God. It doesn't sound quite fair that an innocent, small, 
fluffy lamb. I should have had a picture of that on the wall because you'd all go, oh, that's the one. (laughs) It seems unreasonable. And it seems unfair, and that's exactly the point that God is making. It's totally unfair. The innocent creature gets what you deserve. But it's the only way. Because you're on your, on your own, you can't get rid of your sin. Because God desires to be with us, though. God provides a way to, for our sin to be washed away. For us to become right in his eyes again. To be the, white, the pure white marker on the pure white page. And we hear it not just in an Old Testament way. We hear it in a, in a new way as well. Because it's a familiar story. We hear these words and we relate them to the sacrifice of God's very own son, Jesus. Who had no sin of his own, yet takes on the sin of each and every one of us. And we say, it's not fair. Yet today we worship here because of that very fact. We stand here as white markers drawing on the white piece of paper, enjoying community with our holy God. So three things, but what do those three things do for us today? God is saying to you that he, the same as what he said to Moses, I want to calm down, but if I'm going to calm down, we've got three things to sort out. And he says this, firstly, I'm going to need a space to stay. This time the place I've chosen is not a temple built with stones or bricks. Rather, it is the temple that wears shoes and socks. I want my presence to dwell with you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. The passage emphasizes the idea that as believers, our bodies are considered the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us. It's a call for us as believers to honor our physical bodies as well, but live in a, in a way that reflects the dwelling of God in our lives. That's a big thing for us, for the way we act, for the way we interact with others, for the way we respond. The question for us is, are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to respond and act in a way that our physical bodies represent God himself? That's a huge thing. Maybe it means you have to change some of your habits. Maybe it means you have to change some of the things that you do or watch or listen to. Maybe it it makes you stop to think about how I'm going to respond to someone. Are you prepared for that? Secondly, God says, in order for for him to come down and dwell with us, your sin must be atoned for. No longer the sacrifice of animals and grains is the sacrifice of my son, Jesus. His blood is powerful enough to, to forgive your sins. God doesn't have to separate himself from us any longer. The curtain has been torn into, been let out of the room, and now dwell right with us. Have you ever had that sinking feeling that you've just gone past a speed camera and you look down and you go, I think I might have been in, but I'm not sure. My, my speedometer's got three kilometres in it anyway. Should be all right. You have that, that feeling? I, I, obviously, I don't because I've never... No, I'm just, 
I was, I was hoping someone would say yes and it wouldn't just be me up here going, oh no, it's just me. <laughs> um, but after that sinking feeling, you have to wait, don't you? You wait the one week, you wait the two weeks, you know, it's going to come soon. Every, every day you're at the letterbox, nothing. And you live with this tension that something may come. Imagine the difference it would make to, to, to you in those weeks if the local policeman called up and said, hey, guess what? I saw you go past and get, you're, you're right on 60. You're all right. Don't stress anymore. It's okay. There's not going to be a speeding fine. Imagine the release it would be for you. You can get on living without the fear of consequence. Now that's the life that God wants us to live. A life that is free because the consequence of sin has been taken from you. You're to live in freedom as a person of faith. Now, that's not to excuse action and you can go and do whatever you want because there's consequence for actions, of course. But eternal consequences mean that we no longer have to live in fear. No longer have to live in fear to invite your neighbour that you've been chatting to to Alpha. No longer live in fear to, to, uh, to help someone on the side of the road that might need a little bit of help. No longer to live in fear because God's grace and favour is with us. We can cry out to God like the Hebrews did and say, God, where are you? And God is close. The third thing that he says that we need to do is, um, is that I need to give you some guidelines on how to treat one another. You don't have to fulfill these guidelines to have a relationship with God because I love you regardless, he says. That's not in the deal. But get into the word of God. Learn God's will because that way you'll walk a path to freedom. He wants us to be in his word. He wants us not just to, to read it, but to understand it. He wants to be doers of the word. So what are you going to do out of this? Will you say to him, dear God, I don't want to go anywhere without you. Dear God, I can face this illness with you. Dear God, I can't face loss without you. Dear God, I can't overcome an addiction without your power and presence. Dear God, will you be at work with me? I need your favour. Is these the prayers you're going to ask? The words of Moses the parrot is pretty true. Jesus is watching you. Or maybe it needs to change a little bit. Jesus is with you. Not to make you pay for being bad or catching you in a mistake. He's with you because he loves you. He's with you because he wants to be a blessing to you. He wants to protect you. To close, I want to offer you the prayer of Moses. You can read this in Exodus 33. Moses had the audacity to pray this. He says, Dear God, show me your glory. Send down your presence. I want to see your face. Show me your glory. Send down your presence. I want to see your face. And God says, You can't handle that. You can't handle that. But what I'm going to do, because I'm so pleased with you, this is in Exodus 33, I'm going to brush by you as you wait in the alcove of a cave. And as I go by, I'll put my hand over the cleft of the rock so you, can actually see my, you can't actually see my face. But as I pass, I'll remove my hand so you'll see the back of me. Moses nestled into the cleft of the rock and the presence of God passed by him. Imagine that, being in the presence of the physical God. But that's got to be our prayer as well. Because God is with us. Show me your glory. 
Send down your presence. I want to see your face. So as we ask the questions about the future of the church in Australia, here at KSBC, as we share Jesus with our neighbours and friends, or as we go out into Baronia on a Wednesday night and, and talk to people on the streets of Baronia or wherever you may live, as we think about who we're connecting with to invite to Alpha, let's seek God's presence right here with us. Let's put legs on our faith as we've been reminded today that God is not an up there God. God is here now. Let's pray. So our Lord and God, we give you thanks and praise that you are with us, that you have brought us back to right relationship with you. Even though we still stray and stumble, God, you are present. So we pray, God, now that you help us on our daily basis, on our walk as we go to school, to work, to university, as we have a day off, as we walk the dog, as we go to the cafe, wherever it may be, that we may be asking you to show your presence, that it's not just about us, it's about the people around us, that we may see people come to know you more and more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.